I'm preaching, but Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 34, I'm just going to read three verses. Matthew here is speaking, and he says, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land, or came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to understand all that you would teach us this morning from your word. I pray that you would give the preacher a voice to speak, give him clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and give us all understanding. Father, our desire is to see and behold Christ and take hold of Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So just by way of uh, uh, recapping what we've learned in this chapter so far... This has been sort of a a short chapter for us, broken up in in fairly big sections. We began with Herod Antipas, and we watched as the fame of Jesus rose, but then it was met with rejection or met with unbelief. And then we moved very quickly to a very popular miracle. There are actually in this chapter two of the most famous miracles that Jesus performed. The first one, the feeding of the 5,000, and we saw... In that miracle, the compassion of Jesus, we saw the the provision of Jesus, we saw His power in creation as He created food when there was no food. We saw that the people who partook of His creation were satisfied with what they received from Him. So in other words, we saw unbelief and then we saw the works of Jesus. We saw a miracle and then... Matthew goes and he gives us another example of the mighty works of Jesus, the feeding of, or the walking on the water. And that was uh, what Jordan preached last week. And we saw in that text the purpose of Jesus, that he he had a, a very specific purposes and has very specific purposes for everything he says, everything he does, every command that he gives. He has a purpose, he has authority. And everything He says and everything He does. And if we come to Jesus and we hear Him say something and we don't receive that as an authoritative word obligating us to bow down and submit, then we have misunderstood. Because He is King. The question is, will you bow down and submit to the King? And we saw His authority. We saw again His power over creation, defying the laws of of physics, walking on the water. Um, We don't have... Most of us don't have very scientific minds. We can't comprehend walking on water. It just doesn't, it doesn't compute in our brains. He walked on water. Scripture says that he was, the, the boat was many stadia out in the water. I mean, he walked, it wasn't like he, he you know, just kind of skipped across the top of the water. He walked a long way out yeah. on the top of the water. And then 
we, we sort of, we ended last week with, with the worship, that response, but there was this question that fits sort of in the theme that's being built here, that Jesus asks Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Say that there's Peter with unbelief. Herod responds with unbelief, and we can kind of get that. But here's Peter. He doubted. Peter walked on the water, and he doubted. Why would he ever doubt? After all that he had seen, why would Peter, of all people, Peter, doubt? We could ask the same question for us. We doubt. Of all, after all that we've seen, if we're Christians, our hearts, our old dead hearts have been taken out. A new heart has been thrust inside of us. We, we, we might come to a worship service like this and we might hear the Word and we might read of the wonderful things that Jesus has done and then we walk out the door and a lot of times the first response, if it is a sinful thing, if, if we act out in sin, that is immediately... A, 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 an action that says, I don't believe in God. Because if we truly believed in God, we would tremble at the thought of sin. But we, we see all these things and we walk out and we, we live like, well, I don't believe that there is a God. We wouldn't say that, but we, we do. Why could we, or why would we ever doubt? Charles Spurgeon, I was reading his morning devotion this week and he said, or he writes there, we know not which to marvel at most, the faithfulness of God's people or the unbelief of God's people. It, which is more hard to get our minds around. That, that there's a people who would believe in this God. Or there's a people transformed by this God. And yet we still yeah. respond with unbelief. So often. So Peter responded with this unbelief. And then we move into this passage today. Where the people respond with great faith. The, the opposite of unbelief. Great faith, the, the kind of faith that should have been displayed by Peter. The kind of faith that should be displayed in us, and that's our theme today, is, is faith. Now we'll talk about, well, is this saving faith? Well, it may or may not be. We don't know. It doesn't say that. But the, the essence of their faith is a faith that should be mimicked by all believers. The Christian religion is oftentimes called the Christian faith. Christianity sometimes just called the faith. We are called people of faith. Everything that Christianity is, is oftentimes just summed up in faith. And when the world hears faith, they think, oh, that's just a blind leap. Like you just close your eyes and step and hope that there's something there that's going to catch you. That's not biblical faith. Amen. Biblical faith is, I read and I, I, I first of all, I, I see in creation that there is a God. All people can see that. They all know that there is a God, Romans 1. And then we read in His Word, special revelation. We see what He has said and how He has revealed Himself. And then we live accordingly. We live it out. We walk based on what He has said. That's Amen. biblical faith. And then that, that type of faith is the mode by which we, with our hearts and our minds and our souls, that's the mode or the, the arm that we reach out and we take hold of Christ. We yeah. seize Him and we make Him ours. He becomes our Savior. Because I can't see Him. I can't touch Him. I can't talk to Him face to face. But I can see that He's revealed Himself through His Word. And so I act on that. The scripture says we are saved not by faith. We are saved by 
grace through faith. That grace comes to us on the conduit of faith. So when our hearts are regenerated, that's that Ezekiel 36, taking out the dead heart, getting a new heart. We get a new heart at the same time we are given eyes to see Christ. And then He gives us the faith to say, I'm going to grab that Christ. I'm going to squeeze Him and I'm going to make Him mine. He's our one and only hope. We hold on to Him like, like someone drowning in the ocean. They, they hold on to a life pre- pre- preserver. Now I didn't say that salvation is when you're in the ocean and you reach up and take on the life pre- preserver. But that faith takes hold of Christ. Now again, are these people displaying saving faith? Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't say that. Either way, the, the essence of this faith is, the faith that they exhibit is something that should be mimicked. At least we can take what they do and transfer it over to the spiritual, spiritual realm. So beginning in verse 34, we have the setting of this scene. And there's not, not a lot here. There are only three verses in Matthew's gospel. I'm going to use Matthew and I've got Mark's uh, account of it here also. He uses three verses. Um, the setting is in Gennesaret. Verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. So remember last week they were going through this storm. And when Jesus and Peter get back into the boat, the wind ceased and they reach land. And they came to Gennesaret. Gennesaret is, uh, is on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're looking at a map... It's on the northwestern side, and this would have been considered the region of Galilee. The region of Galilee wasn't just anything near the sea. On the, the, the western side was the Galilean region. And so this was a part of this Galilean region where most of his earthly ministry took place there in Galilee. And this was a Jewish region. The majority of these people were Jewish which is important when you're reading the Gospels and you're watching how Jesus responds and what Jesus is saying and doing, you need to remember who He's talking to. Next week, He's going to be talking to Jewish leaders. But in weeks to come, Jordan's going to be preaching. He's going to be talking um, um, about the Gentile dogs. That's a a different group. And so the way Jesus responds to these different people groups is, is important in understanding this. But... As much as Matthew likes to focus on Israelite rejection of Jesus, here he's not afraid to say, well, this is a point where he comes to a Jewish region and the people have faith. They're acting out some sort of belief in this man. And again, next week we're going to see some more of this Israelite rejection from the Pharisees and the scribes. So that's the location. They've come to a Jewish region. They're in, in the region of Galilee where a lot of his ministry took place. The next thing we see in verse 35, we see that Jesus is recognized. Matthew says, when the men of that place recognized him. Mark says, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. So Matthew closes this chapter, and of course it wasn't a chapter when Matthew wrote it, but this section closes the same way it began. Remember, it began with the fame of Jesus rising to where even Herod Antipas was getting word about this man doing ministry. And here we are closing the chapter with the fame of Jesus rising to where he's no longer recognized by his miracles or by his teaching. He's recognized by his face. They just see him and they realize, oh, this is the guy. This is the one 
that we, that we remember who's doing these things. Now, we don't recognize people that we've seen a bunch of times, or I don't. I could see somebody five or six times and still go to Walmart and stare right at their face and not recognize them. But they recognize Jesus. His, his fame is growing. Herod, when the fame met Herod, it was met with unbelief. But when the fame of Jesus meets, or, or, or um, when the his fame of Jesus meets these people of Gennesaret, it's met with belief. They see him and they know right away, this is the one. This is the, the one who works miracles. This is the, the healer. And they know him as such. And such he is. And that leads them to action. That's, that's faith. This is the healer. Therefore, it requires us to do something. We're going to act out of what we know to be true. So they recognized him. And it says they sent to all that region. Or again, Mark 6, 55. They ran about the whole region. So they see him. And they recognize his face. This is the healer. And then they just scatter. Word begins to be sent out. Messengers are deployed and the message is this. The healer is back on our shores. And it says they brought him all who were sick. Mark adds a little bit to this. Mark 6.55 Mark says they began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And Mark continues and wherever he came in villages Cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, the, the gathering places of the area. So what we find out, when we read this in Matthew, we, we think, well, this is just a, a, a moment in time. He got there that day, and he healed a bunch of people. And then if we were to immediately flip over and read John 6, we would read a completely different story, and we would think, oh, well, the Bible contradicts itself. But what we find out is from Matthew and Mark that this is not a, a summary event of, or summary of just one time, one place event. This is a summary statement of all that he did in this region. Much like we've seen in, I think it was the end of chapter 4 of Matthew, and I think it was also chapter 8 or 9, these, these summary uh, statements where it says he just went out throughout the region casting out demons, healing the sick, and things like that. This is one of those phrases. So, after feeding the 5,000, after walking on water, in the days and weeks and maybe even months that followed, this is what Jesus did. He went around healing people. So as soon as He hits the shore, they recognize the healer. Word is sent out. They scatter. And they begin to bring all who were sick to wherever He is, all the disease, to wherever He might be. So that they might be healed. And then in verse 36, Jesus heals many. Now this is where the story begins to take sort of a turn from the, the, the regular healing narratives that we've read. He says, they implored him, they, they asked him, they begged him, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Now why would they do that? Some would just come and say, you know, can I be healed? Or would you heal this person or that person? Some wouldn't say anything. These people have made a specific request. Can we just touch the hem of your garment? Why would they make such a specific request? I think that there might be multiple reasons. First reason, perhaps they just didn't want to bother him very much. And so they just want to do the least possible. 
You know, like if you're, you're going to somebody's house and you want to drop something off at their house, you know they're maybe having supper with their family, you say, I'll just leave it on the porch or I'll just, I'll just stick it in the mailbox, the, the, least, um, the, the least possible so, so as to not interrupt. That could be why. Or I think this is maybe a better explanation. I think that they believed that there was something special about touching his garment. Now why would I think that? Well... You'll remember back in chapter 9, we read this. Chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Another very famous miracle from Jesus. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly... The woman was made well. Now I wonder if word of this had not gotten out. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. It's not like people didn't know who she was. She touches him in a crowd and is completely better. And if you understand, and we'll talk more about this later, the, 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 the Jewish way of perceiving a woman like this, all of a sudden she's back in the community, back at the marketplace, walking around, She's fixed. The word had probably gotten around about this miracle. And they were maybe just superstitiously believing that there's something about his garment or something about touching it. Or maybe they thought, well, I just want to see if it'll work for us. We really don't know, but they've asked if they could just touch the hem of his garment, the edge of his his robe. And he complies. He, He allows them to do that. And I may mention... A couple weeks ago, in Scripture, when it comes to healing, Jesus often responds with healing to those who have very little faith and those who have no spoken of faith. He he never responds to try to convince people. When they say, show us a miracle and we'll believe, He says, no way. But if they have just a little bit... He'll give them. He'll, he'll he'll heal them. Or if they have, if there's none to be spoken of, he will heal them. And and this is an example of this faith bringing about a miracle. And we we would dare not say, well, if you have faith, therefore God must respond with healing. That that's not assumed in this passage, because there are many times where Jesus heals when there's no spoken faith. Now. We have to remember, again, because of the various God-given laws concerning ceremonial uncleanness and impurity, and because by this time the many man-made superstitions that covered sicknesses and disease, remember the Pharisees took everything to the extreme, the normal religious leaders of Jesus' day would have, have never been caught dead in a crowd of sick people, ever let alone let them touch them. Because then they would become unclean if they had one of these impurities. These people request a touch. Let let us touch you, Jesus. In other words, let us potentially make you sick. Let us potentially make you unclean. And we'll see next week that goes straight into chapter 15 with a discussion about impurity and the laws and the, the regulations of the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus complies. Because as we've seen several times, Jesus is not afraid of becoming unclean or impure. If you've ever 
worked on your car, your hands get all greasy, and you go in the house to take a shower, you don't put on gloves so that you don't get your soap dirty. You don't do that because soap is the cleansing agent. You're not afraid of getting the soap dirty. You want it all over you so that it can make you clean. And that's how Jesus is. He's not afraid of being around impurity or uncleanness or disease thinking He might catch it because He is the cleansing agent. He is the purifier. He is the healer. So if they just come in contact with Him, they might be made well. He's not afraid of that. And so he, it is implied that He concedes to their request. Matthew says, as many as touched it were made well. The word made well means saved thoroughly, completely. Some of the older translations say they were made perfectly whole. As if they were broken and then they just put them back together. Now these people, like all of the beneficiaries of the healing power of Jesus, were made unquestionably, undeniably, perfectly, completely better in a moment. And I say this every time that it makes a statement like this because I think it's important in our culture. It doesn't say, well, some of them left feeling a little bit better that day. They came thinking that they might have had some pain and when they left for a little bit, they felt better. Because in our day, there are many who profess to have the ability to do miracles and profess to be able to heal and that's their, that's their explanation. Well, I touched somebody who was having back pain that day. Okay, well, I can have back, back pain, and then five minutes later, it's not hurting so bad. I didn't do anything. It's just maybe not hurting that bad anymore. This is not that. This is undeniable, unquestioned, He did it. And they're better. They're sick, and they're diseased, and then they walk away completely better. So that's the passage. Now, the first application, I think, is, is maybe the most obvious, and I don't think we've ever gone this route with one of these healing passages and I alluded to this Thursday night the first point is this Jesus heals broken bodies Jesus heals broken bodies we are so quick and I'm as guilty of this as anyone we're so quick to immediately go the spiritual route what does this mean there's got to be more here than just Jesus made sick people better in an instant with a touch. There's got to be more than that. That's kind of like saying there's got to be more than He walked on water. There's got to be more than He created food out of nothing. No, there doesn't have to be more. He made them better. They touched Him and they were made well. And we can't forget that physical healing is still on the list of things that the Lord Jesus Christ can do today. And we dare not let the loose cannons of charismania steal our Holy Spirit power, our God-given power of healing. Now, they, they get to it a different route. They're going to say, well, well, I have this gift and you have that gift. And we, would, we wouldn't say that. We would say, God has the ability to heal people if He so chooses. And He can use any means that He wants and I think the Bible, the New Testament, addresses some of those, which I'm going to read in a minute. But the God who speaks worlds into existence can make sick bodies better if He wants to. He doesn't have to, and He's not required to, but He can. Now that seems so simple. Every, don't, doesn't every Christian agree? Every Christian believes that God heals people. But if we take our theme, our topic of faith... 
and we apply that to this text, would your life show that when it comes to physical healing, you have faith in a sovereign healer? Oftentimes we say, well, of course I believe in God. Of course I believe in God. I mean, we have to be practical. There's medicines and there's surgeries and there's doctors and things like that. And I'm not denouncing those things at all. I take medicine all the time. I'm not denouncing those things. But our attitude is usually this. Well, I believed when I got saved. Now my faith is just assumed. And when I get sick or there's a physical problem, I just immediately run to the medicine cabinet. Or I immediately run to the doctor. And I don't even think about God. We're Christians. We, we, we run to God first. We cry out to God first. God is the first and primary cause of any healing agent. He uses the means of medicine. He uses the doctors. He uses the scalpel. So we run to God first. In James chapter 5, If anyone among you is sick, or he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the faith healer. No. Let him call the doctor. No. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Why? Because they're praying to God. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice the first step, James, a New Testament author, living during the time of the New Testament church, the first step he says when somebody is sick is not, we'll find somebody with the gift of healing. Yeah, yeah. He says, pray. And that's why I believe that those miraculous gifts were already fading away at this time. He says, call the elders. Let them pray over you. Let them pour oil on you if that's your thing. I've never done it, but if that's your thing, the Bible says do it. We'll find some. And the prayer of faith will save. Again, that doesn't negate using medicine or going to the doctor. Sometimes we pray and then we say, good luck. They're going to the doctor tomorrow. Let's pray and then go. Here's the medicine. Let's pray and then take it. But we oftentimes run to those things acting as if our faith is just assumed and we don't get the opportunity to exercise our faith, to cry out to God, to call out to the elders, to call the other members of the church and pray and make a really big deal about the fact that we are Christians and we don't act like the world. When we're sick, our first thought should be, Wait, I know the healer. I, I recognize the healer. I know him. I talk to him daily. Let me go to him first, and then I will exhaust the options that he's given me. Prayer should be our first line of defense against sickness and disease. That's why I was so blessed or, or encouraged as a pastor months ago whenever uh, Chastity began to have begin to discover the issues that were going on with her body. And Chrissy said that the, the women of the church took her back here and they prayed for her. And then Thursday night, she's going into surgery Friday morning. What do we do? We're going to get together. We're going to get the church and we're going to pray. We're not just going to say, well, there's, there's surgeons. Surgeons can fix it. Surgeons can take care of her. No, we're going to pray. And the reason that she is doing well, the reason that she is making progress is not... Well, the surgeon did a good job. It's because God did it. He used a surgeon. Maybe a surgeon that says there is no God. Maybe a surgeon that doesn't believe in God. 
took that surgeon up and used that surgeon as a tool for our sister in Christ. And she's making progress. She's doing better. We run to God first. So Jesus heals broken bodies. I think that's something that we need to act out in our faith more often. But the second one, of course I'm going to get to the spiritual application, is that Jesus heals broken humanity. See, for us, again, when we have a sickness or when we have a disease, this is, this is our thought. Doctor, medicine, temperature, symptoms, WebMD. If it's, if it's really bad, stay home from work. Sometimes it might mean medicine for the rest of your life or chemotherapy or some sort of radiation for the rest of your life. That's what we think of. That's, that's where our minds immediately go when it comes to sickness and disease. Figure out the symptoms and address the symptoms so that we can get back on our feet and continue our lives. But in Jesus' day, although they had medicines, they were more like superstitious home remedies than, than medicines. They were nowhere near as effective as our modern medicines. So let's think about medicine for a first century Jew or, or sickness for a first century Jew. If you were sick or you had a disease in the first century, usually that meant helplessness and dependency. Remember Mark said they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he was. That's because they couldn't get there. They couldn't take medicine to knock the fever down so that they could, they could go. They were, they were laid out. So they got to pick up the bed. You remember the, the men who were, they lowered their friend down through the roof because he couldn't move. He couldn't get there. Matthew chapter 5, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus says, what are you doing here? And he says, well, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another step steps down before me. He's just laying there. There's a pool that they believe has healing power. And he's just laying there, hoping that somebody might come and just nudge him in at just the right time so that he can be healed. He's, he's helpless. Completely dependent on other people to make him better. Second thing. Sickness and disease meant hopelessness. We go back to the woman with the issue of blood. Mark chapter 5 verse 26 describes her as one who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She suffered under the physicians. Now Luke, as a physician, he's, he's a little more biased toward the physician perspective. And so he says there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She spent all her money. So we have a woman in the first century, no money. She's ceremonially unclean, cast out, her husband is more than likely gone by this point because she's, she's unacceptable to be a wife. She's probably of the mindset, I'm going to either be healed or go home and die. Hopeless. Or the third thing, sickness and disease meant for a first century Jew. Separation from the covenant community. Remember Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, there are all these rules and regulations about leprosy, which could be an assortment of skin diseases. You've got a blemish. 
Go to the priest and get it checked out. Anything. And you have to go. And, and if they render you a, a, a leper, then you're separated out. You're unclean. At least for the day. As long as the symptoms persist, you can't go into the gathered assembly of the people and worship. If they were officially diagnosed, they're cast out of the community forever. You live outside the camp. You can't be around us. You shout unclean when anybody comes around. You cover your, cover your lip. Put on rags so that everybody knows, don't go near that person. Their homes would have to be cleaned out, potentially destroyed, and built back from scratch because of leprosy. And leprosy could cause many other problems like paralysis, like lameness, like blindness. So whenever you read someone was lame or someone was blind or someone was paralyzed, that could have been caused by leprosy causing them to be cast out from the community. Leviticus chapter 15 addresses bodily discharges, including those brought about by sexually transmitted diseases. And that would render a person unclean. As long as you had the symptoms, you're unable to attend public worship. You're unable to come into the gathered assembly. You're cut off from the covenant community of God's people. Now, why does that matter? For us, that, that, we don't understand why that's a big deal. But if you read Exodus chapter 40, you learn that after the tabernacle was built, what happened? God's glory came down, boom, and filled that tabernacle. And that was where the presence of God dwelt in the midst of His people. And they all built or they all set up their homes around the tabernacle. God's presence. If you can't be in and amongst the gathered people of God, you're cut off from the presence of God who dwelt in the midst of His people. So what do these ailments point us to? They point us to the sin that separates us from God. So those with these particular problems were also cut off from God physically. You can't go into His presence. You can't go into the temple to worship. So these sicknesses show physical pictures of the defilement of our souls because of sin. If you need more proof, remember in Matthew chapter 8 we studied this. Verses 16 and 17. That evening they brought to Him many who were oppressed by demons. And He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So He cast out demons. He healed the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Matthew said this physical healing was to fulfill Isaiah 53. And if you read Isaiah 53, you know Isaiah 53 is not about physical healing. It is about penal substitutionary atonement. God the Father putting His Son on the cross in the place of sinners and pouring out His wrath on His Son so that sinners might be set free. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. And Matthew says this healing of people taking away their physical ailments was a fulfillment of that. Now if you make it about just the physical, then you get health and wealth gospel. Jesus died on the cross so that you could be healthy. And if you're not healthy, then either your faith is not strong enough or you don't know Jesus. But that's not what it's about. The point is, these physical restorations are signs and precursors 
of the most majestic miracle of all where God restores spiritually those who are sin sick and who have been separated from the benevolent presence of God because of their sin. And that's all of us. So we see throngs of people being brought to Jesus, many of whom would have been helpless and dependent, hopeless, separated from God's presence because of their physical ailments, many of whom no one would have dared to touch because they would have also been considered unclean. And Jesus comes, He allows them to touch Him, and they are made perfectly whole, saved thoroughly. Because of that touch, they're no longer helpless, they're no longer without hope. They're welcomed back into the covenant community. You can imagine someone being healed of leprosy and Jesus saying, Go, go to the temple, run and make the sacrifice, worship in the midst of God's people. Run to the presence of God and worship Him now because you're clean and you can do that. And this is a picture of what happens to those of us who may not be physically sick right now, but who are soul sick, who are sin sick, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and who are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's a picture The sickness and the disease is a picture of the sin that we are all infected with. And the wages of sin is death to those who are sin sick. Spiritual death, physical death, and eventually eternal death. We are all by nature, we just read Ephesians chapter 2, we're all by nature spiritually dead, children of wrath, helpless and dependent, hopeless and lost, cut off from God's presence. And because of sin, we are subject to physical death. If someone dies and we all die, it is because of the presence of sin. Sometimes it's quick and immediate. Sometimes it's after a long Happy life. And sometimes it's after a long battle with a sickness or disease, but it is because of sin. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned. There is death because there is sin. And apart from the saving power of God in Christ, there's only eternal death to come. So we're moving into what people like to call cold season or flu season. We're all going to smell like Hall's cough drops and vapor rub and we'll be coughing and we'll be out of work and you know there'll be a bunch of seats missing for the next several months because people get sick. And every sickness and every disease that comes on our bodies is like the gas light in your car, like the check engine light in your car, it reminds you, number one, this body cannot run on its own. And number two, this body will not work forever. It's, it wasn't meant to. It can't. And these are signs of the end coming to us all because of sin. But God, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy, being rich in love, rich in grace, God removes from us our sin sickness. He heals us of our sin. He cures us of our sin. He makes us completely and thoroughly 
whole, saves us completely. But just like these people in Gennesaret, it requires faith. It can be little faith, it can be weak faith, but it can't be anything less than faith. And it was never about the hem of his garment, touching the hem of his garment. That wasn't anything special. These people may have just been superstitious. It was not about what they touched or how much they touched that produced or, or caused the outflow of the power of Christ. It was who they touched. It must be Christ. Our faith must be in Christ. Little faith, weak faith, grasping only at the edge of the one in whom all things hold together is enough because of the object of our faith. It's just like Moses. He, Moses merely caught a glimpse of the backside of God as he was sheltered in the cleft of the rock and when he came down his face was glowing. It wasn't because of what he saw, it, because, it was because of who he saw. So our faith must be in Christ. Only Christ has been crucified for sinners. Only Christ has been raised for our justification. Only Christ is seated in the heavenlies with all power and authority. Christ is all. Christ is everything. Christ is the one to whom we look for healing, physical healing and spiritual healing. So let us look to Christ for physical healing. When we're sick, call out to Christ. When we're Spiritually sick, look to Christ. Let us make a habit as a church to carry one another on sick beds of prayer to Christ. Amen. Use whatever, Facebook or your phone or write a letter. Probably not quite as fast to write a letter. Use something. Allow the people, the body, the privilege of being the body and taking part in the means God has ordained to heal His people. Prayer. Physical prayer or physical sickness and spiritual sickness. We run to the great physician. Let's pray.